Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Amplify Your Business. Today, I'm talking to Carl Grant III. He is the CEO of Capital Raise. Also, he's the CEO of Connexa Partners, which is a consultancy. He's a partner in Super Connector. He's the chair of the board of CNFI, and he just published a book. I, like, I don't know how you find all the time to do all this stuff, Carl, but welcome to the show. Yeah, Lance, it's a, it's a juggling act. <laughs> Happy to be here. It totally is. So I want to get into your backstory in terms of your entrepreneurial uh, journey, as well as talk a little bit about some of the businesses that you're doing. But before I do that, I like to really start these interviews with one question, and that is, what are three things, in your opinion, that every entrepreneur needs to know? Well, three things. One, um, investors invest in real businesses, not ideas. I think that's a, yep. a really key one. And so, you know, I remember back in the day and I, and I date myself. I mean, I was around during the, the start of the internet and, you know, when, when kind of, kind of like where AI is now, right. Uh, where, you know, everybody's waking up to it. The internet had been around for a while, but it was, it was kind of a, a secret on college campuses. Uh, and then when it went, when the yeah. World Wide web came out and everybody got emailed, then, then all of a sudden the internet was a thing and you could raise money on an idea back then, just have it, get a good web domain and, and a story. And I could find you $3 million today, not a chance. Right. And so, and so when you start a business, unless you've got a rich uncle, who's going to stroke you a check, you need to figure out how to get customers. So, so real business customers, and uh, and then the things that, that you need to have in order to be viable is a large and growing market, an unfair business advantage, yeah. and um, and uh, there's one other one. Oh, and and you know if you, if you've got somebody on your team who's done it before, <laughs> that's helpful because your first time doing it, you know, there's a lot of mistakes to be made. Oh, you tell me about it, right? And and this is the thing about uh, this podcast is I love to dig into some of those, you know, the challenges that uh, people have overcome. And I know we're going to get into that here in a moment, but um, but yeah, no truer words have ever been spoken <laughs> anyway. Um, and talking about the investment side of things, I mean, you're you're an expert in this field. Your business um, is really, or one of your businesses, I, I, I guess, right? Capital Raise is really focused on exactly that, raising capital or helping businesses raise capital. And so tell us a little bit more about that business and how you started that and, and why you started that, I guess. What, what opportunity did you see there? Well, Lance, if I could just revert, like go, go back to the beginning and talk about how I ended up here. If you go back to when I first yeah. started a business with my dad, we were doing, this was in the early 90s. Uh, you know, cable television was a capital of intensive business back then. There was no streaming internet and, um, so I've been involved with the evolution of like video streaming. I could talk about that too, but back when you needed satellites and cameras and studios, uh, there was not capital for these types of businesses. I mean, it was hard to get, I mean, you know, and so we did a business that ultimately the big business didn't succeed because of lack of capital. So when I had to go take a job outside of the television industry, I had, I had a job in the industry. The first job was managing the capital attraction program for, a, for an economic development authority. And so I didn't realize it at the time, but I, my job was to keep companies from moving away from this geography and bringing capital into the geography. And, and we doubled the number of venture firms in that county during 
my tenure there. And so I didn't realize it, but I was building this network of investors that was going to propel me for the rest of my career. So I, I used that network of investors to um, help companies that when I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers, I realized nobody wants to buy an audit. You know, <laughs> they all need them, but, but nobody wants to buy it. So rather than selling audits, I helped companies get funded and then they needed audits and they would use us. It was a beautiful oh, business model. I did the same thing yeah. at, at Cooley. I was global head of business development there, 20 year you know, run uh, increased revenue from 310 million to over 2 billion in, in revenue during my tenure. And that's annual revenue. We did that by connecting companies to sources of capital. And so as you can imagine with 25 years in the investor space, I had a pretty good network. And so, uh, and I, I kept seeing the same problem over and over again. Companies that wanted to raise money, it was a black box. Unless you knew somebody like me, you had no idea where to start. What are you going to get on LinkedIn or Google? Good luck. I mean, <laughs> you know, maybe you can afford a pitch book subscription, but, you know, that, that's between fifteen and $30,000 a year. And most of our startups can't afford, you know, that. And, and so, and then even if you do get on PitchBook, you, you've got a bunch of cold contacts. And what are you going to do? Email them cold? Good luck with that. So we wanted to combine the research functionality of a PitchBook with the introductory capability of a LinkedIn. And, and we did. And so, and so we have a platform that has all of the investment criteria of all of the investor contacts that we know. We have the ability for a company to build a profile like you would on a on LinkedIn, but it's it's more looks a lot more like an executive summary. And then in the middle, we've got a matching algorithm that will take certain elements out of that business profile, where they're located, what their revenue is, what industry they're in, how much they're raising, whether or not they're a female or minority entrepreneur, who their customer base is, and it will query the investor database and show us on a percentage basis which funds are the best fit. Right. And then we also have some coding to let us know which ones we know better than others and and which ones are more responsive. And so, you know, we have a good sense of what kind of responses we're going to get. And even if you do it right like that, it's still tough. I mean, it's you know, I'm not going to blow smoke and say this is an easy process, but it's it's easier when you know who to target and you have somebody who knows them targeting them with you. Uh, and so that's what we do. And we're not so we're not for pre-revenue companies. I, I, if you're a pre-revenue company, you know, don't call us. Uh, <laughs> wait till you're wait till you're further along. You gotta you really have to have closer to like a million dollar run rate. It's like one to ten million in revenue is is a good sweet spot for venture capital. It could be more yeah. than that. But once you start getting yeah. above ten million in revenue, then you, especially if you're profitable, if you've got you know twenty percent EBITDA, then you're a private equity candidate and and we actually have a solution for private equity as well that's it's a little different than the the venture capital solution it, very interesting though so you you match these people up uh, so they put in an application you figure out who's going to be the right fit for them and then you make those introductions is there more than that do you help them with the pitch do you do anything like that as well Yes. Yeah, so, so it, it's, it's a white glove service. Uh, you know, we have a kickoff meeting. It's, it's, you know, it's about a half hour meeting. Sometimes they go an hour, but, but we will go and do a deep dive on their profile. I know yep. what gets a no because I've gotten more. I joke that I've gotten more no's than anybody you've ever met because I've sent more <laughs> stuff out over the course of my career, right? 25 years, yeah. a lot of no's, right? And yeah. so yeah. I know when you put certain things in your, in your profile, it's going to get an automatic no. So I, I try to no proof it as much as possible. Even after you do that, it's still not 
it's not no proof, but it's it's better than it was. And then I listen to the pitch, and I will give constructive feedback on the pitch, and um, and then we also will do coaching through the the course of the the process, right? Um, there's a lot of it's done by technology. You know, we have a, a, a like a matrix that we share that shows who's been contacted, you know, who's rejected it, and then the entrepreneur will update that matrix to say how the pitch went, whether or not they have another meeting, whether or not they passed, or if they're getting a term sheet or whatever. And so, um, but but every now and then you need that human contact where you need a trusted advisor to get on the phone with you or on a Zoom and talk through, hey, this investor said this, what should I do? Like, and, yep. and so I've been through so many of these deals over the course of 25 years, you know, especially, especially at the law firm, you know, I was with some of the brightest lawyers, you know, helping negotiate these deals. And so I know totally. what gives and takes and, and I can give, you know, it's, it's not exactly free advice, but you know, I, we don't charge extra for the advice. Uh, I can give you some good sound advice. And then if you need a good lawyer, certainly I've got a network of those and, and you want to be well represented when you go into a deal like this. Um, wh what is not included if, if a company comes to us and their pitch deck is just a disaster, like it totally needs to be redone or their financial model is just a joke. Um, you know, we, we can provide those services, but we have to charge extra for those. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I've had yeah, situations where somebody needs a financial model built, you know, and we didn't do it in-house. We, we sent it to a, a colleague that does it for us. Um, but we do, we do have the infrastructure internally to do the pitch decks. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it, this is a natural progression. It seems like, uh, for, you know, the 25 years of your career, your expertise, uh, it, it, it seems just completely natural that you would end up at this place where you're connecting people with their, with, with investors. So, um, why did it take you 20 some odd years to get there, I guess would be the question. Uh, and this, I guess will lead into, tell us a little bit about that entrepreneurial journey that you've been on. Because before we hit the record button, you said that I started as an entrepreneur fresh out of university, and then I ended up going into corporate and then back to entrepreneurship. So tell us about that process and, and the journey. Yeah, the journey was uh, coming out of grad school. I, I got my MBA at the Kelly School of Business in Indiana, and my colleagues were taking middle management jobs at uh, big, you know, big Midwest uh, manufacturing companies. And, and that, that didn't seem too exciting to me. You know, I, I, I didn't yeah. really want to go to a big corporate job. And so I moved back home uh, with my parents and I started a business with my dad and we got bits and pieces of that business up and running, but not the whole thing, like I mentioned earlier. Um, and so when I started a family, um, you know, I, I did have to take a job that paid me. It wasn't like deferred salary. So, so I, I joined um, a, a, a television network that had launched inside of a, a larger corporate entity that that network got acquired by Gannett. And um, ultimately they didn't want to stay in the business we were in. So I, I had to move on from there. So I won't take you through the whole thing, but I started out as an entrepreneur and then early on in my, my married life in 2000, 2001, I, I did the entrepreneur thing again. I, I, I joined the management team of the first company to put video over the internet, believe it or not, that was 24 years ago. And, wow. um, and we raised $36 million on one frame Holy. per second motion JPEG, if you can believe that. Uh, can you believe that? 
and and we got it to three frames per second. We got it to MPEG four. You know, we were doing some cool stuff, but it was it was in the infancy. I mean, like there was no audio yet. I mean, it was it was really early, and uh, yeah. you know, we could have been we could have been YouTube, we could have been Zoom, we could have been all that. But but when the market crashed in March of two thousand, right when we got that thirty six million dollars. We didn't know the party was over, but it was over. I mean, we we had a strategic um, alliance with Sony and and like some major stuff, but but there was just no revenue coming in, and so the the VCs pulled the plug on that, and um, and I, I went and I joined a friend of mine's um, financial services company that was morphing into a fintech company, and he had raised close to three million dollars before I had gotten there. I joined. The board of directors and the management team and we doubled revenues from a million to two million uh in the year that i was there and then 9 11 happened and oh. that just shook up the financial markets um i had led the effort to put together a series b round i had a lead investor our series a investor was going to participate in the series b and then when 9-11 happened i'll never forget if 9-11 wasn't bad enough on 9-12 we got the email saying we're not doing. We're not participating in your Series B and cut everybody's uh, cut everybody's salary in half. <laughs> uh, you know, and this is from from your Series A investor. Yeah, yeah, and I've got yeah. four kids at this point. I th- yeah, four kids at this point, yeah. and uh, yeah. fifth on the way in a couple of years. And and I'm <laughs> like, you know, I I, yeah. I I can't stick around on half a salary. And and so um, that's when I started interviewing with the law firm that I went to go work for. And my wife asked me at that point, she said, how about if you don't do any more startups while I'm raising all these kids? Cause she stayed home with the kids <laughs> and it, it yeah. was, you know, she's a bit frazzled with uh, two startups blowing up in two years. And, uh, and so I, I, I went wow. to, uh, you know, the big company, uh, we re- grew revenue from 310 million to over 2 billion in revenue. It was, it was a great run. Um, but, I still had that entrepreneurial itch. I was living vicariously through the entrepreneurs that I helped. I helped many, many entrepreneurs become multimillionaires. It was a lot of fun. You know, I, I, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't me. And so after 20 years of helping all those companies and my, my youngest is a, a sophomore at Baylor University, I, I decided to jump back in. And so yeah. I'm back in yeah. the entrepreneurial game and uh, yeah. a little so, bit smarter what is today. It? Yeah, what is it about entrepreneurship? You, you know, like you, you had the taste of it. Obviously, you had some challenges that you bumped into, just uh, you know, geopolitically and, and economically, and so on, um, that uh, that changed the course of some of those businesses that you're involved with. And then you spend so much time in corporate to then step back into entrepreneurship. What what is it about it that just pulls people in, in your opinion? Well, there's a certain freedom. Uh, to being an entrepreneur, um, yeah. you know, um, not to not to single out any one company, but you know, the corporate environment today is is different than it used to be, right? There, there's, yeah. there, I don't want to get too many details, but it, you know, there there are policies that aren't fun to adhere to, and uh, and you know, you might not always agree with them. Just put it that way. And and so when you have your own company, you you don't really have to follow another company's agenda and and you don't have to i'm still kind of guarded as to what i say and do you know just because i'm accustomed to doing that but i you know you mentioned i wrote a book you know and and i expressed a lot of personal stuff in that book and being outside of the corporate 
you know, prison, if you will, I, I, I felt freer to talk about things, right? I, I am yeah. very open about, about my faith in the book, right? I, it, when I first did the first draft, I didn't, I, I suppressed all of that. And it wasn't, it wasn't true to me because my faith in God is, is what drives most of what I do. And so going back and incorporating that in and, and, and explaining how that played a role in all the decisions that I made and things I did and trials I went through, I felt more free and I, and I feel free to talk about it with you right now. Whereas if I was wearing that corporate hat, I might not be talking about, you know, talking about your, your, religious faith, you know, or, you know, I, I'm not going to talk about my political views, but I could now I couldn't before. Right. So there's just a freedom to do that and financial freedom too. It's like when you're in a corporate box like that, you can't go and do, I couldn't have like three side hustles, but I can now and I do. So I'm making up for lost time. And so, you know, (laughs) the corporate job was great for that time period in my life. Right. I, I needed a stable income. It was a wonderful income. It was the, the firm I worked for. It was a great work environment, um, great benefits. I, I was up to seven weeks of vacation plus paid, you know, 12 paid holidays. And so when you're raising a family and you want to spend time with them going and doing meaningful things, I could do that. I can't do that now because, I'm, you know, I've got my own business. And uh, if I'm not here, you know, things don't happen. And so, I, you know, taking vacations where I completely unplug it's it's kind of hard now yeah it's 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 not something that I do that's for sure and uh and it is a trade off right um but I feel that it's a trade off worth worth it for sure because of the freedom because of your ability to be uh you know independent and not have to answer to other people as much as we do answer to our clients obviously uh you know there there is still somebody that we that 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 is holding us accountable, I I suppose, in a lot of respect, but it's that flexibility, I think is the biggest thing. Yeah. Well, financial, look, the the salary, the salary was great in my corporate job, but, but, you know, the upside wasn't there right now. It's, I don't have necessarily as stable of a, like a fat salary, you know, it's, it's a little bit more hit or miss in the entrepreneurial world, but the possibility to have a home run is there. And that's nice. Yep. Yeah, the upside is really good. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that you started working with your dad in the early days. And then um, something that you mentioned prior to us hitting the record button is that you're currently working with your son uh, in in, uh, one of your businesses right now. And so I'm curious, the, the nuances that come from working with family as partners versus um, other ventures that you have where you have non-family partners. What uh, What is the difference there and how do you navigate through that successfully? What advice would you give other entrepreneurs who are working with family? Well, na- name your kid the same as you. <laughs> so so my, my dad's name was Carl. My son's name is Carl. And so I remember what, what I would do with my dad. It's kind of a funny story, right? Like I, I would I would tee up meetings. I would do all the legwork and then send him in, you know, kind of send the gray hair in to, uh, to close the deal. Right. And so, um, there's a little bit of that going on with my son, right? I mean, you know, we, we have the same name so we can share an email address and, 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 and so, you know, you mentioned when you were in the consulting business, it was hard for you to get people to go and work with the junior person. Well, 
my junior person has the same name as me. <laughs> so it's a little easier to have Carl handle Carl's business. And so he's very capable. I, I know that's kind of a funny way of approaching that, but, but totally. th that is, that is a nuance there that, that I've learned to, I learned it with my dad and I'm exploiting it with my son and it, and it works well. So I, look, I think with family, um, you know, you, you look at, I, I think of uh, even our previous president uh, in the United States, he, he surrounded himself with family members. I, I think that was because he knew he could trust them. If you, if trust. you, yep. if you looked at the snake den of people he had around him, like most of those people weren't, uh, weren't trustable, but, but his family members never turned on him. Right. And so I think there's a certain trust level. I, I don't know that using the president is the best you know way to do it, but I, that's what came to mind. And, and so, yeah, I trust him implicitly. So when it comes to, um, you know, looking back in your 25 years of experience uh, and all the businesses that you've seen grow, but then also the ones that you've seen some failures um, along the way, whether they're, you know, some of the businesses that you were directly involved with or ones that you were consulting with and working with, um, what do you think is the biggest distinguishing factor between success and failure, if you could distill it down into, you know, a couple key observations that you've seen. The businesses that tend to be the most successful are the ones that are thinking of, about revenue right out of the gate, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're building towards revenue. Uh, companies that have super capital intensive business models where they've got to, you know, raise tons of money before they're going to see revenue one, that's a tough business. I mean, I, I know a company in town that's got 65 million in revenue but they're bleeding cash you know i mean like yeah. like profitable revenue is is better so 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 you got to as a business person you've got to think like a like a real business person like like what are the margins on these sales most tech companies don't think about margins but i tell you the ones that do the ones that do uh tend to be more successful than the ones that don't especially when the economy flattens out like it has because if you've got a profitable business, you're not going to have to, you know, go and raise money all the time. And, and when, when the capital markets aren't producing money, investment money, then, you know, having a profitable business, you stay afloat. And so, you yeah. know, I, I've seen more companies die because they're addicted to capital. That, that's what happened to that, that financial company I told you about. We, we got out, out of our skis in terms of real estate. We had real estate in one, two, three, four markets. And when the mar when the 9-11 happened and we didn't cut everybody's salary in half, like our investor said, we cut the staff in half. You know, we yeah. kept the people who were there full salary, but it's easy to fire people, but it's hard to fire real estate when you have a lease. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. it was the real estate that ended up eating our lunch. And so that's one lesson coming out of COVID is, is, Sorry, real estate people, uh, you know, stay real estate light as much as you can. And, and, you know, yeah. 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 Don't lock yourself into these long-term leases. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting what you're, you know, saying in terms of the revenue um, and just, and you being so involved in the tech side of things as well, a lot of the tech startups and whatnot, because I think that that particular sector has been really taught to 
like with with all of the internet uh, type companies, tech companies that have exploded, it's uh, and the investments that were getting poured into those in the earlier days, it was all about just getting users, getting users at all costs, user growth and revenue or at least profitability was not even something that anybody had to worry about. And so that kind of tainted, I think, a lot of the way that people think from a business strategy standpoint with those types of businesses. And I think we are in a hangover of that still, uh, where there's so many businesses that just really have the same philosophy. Um, and, and what you're saying is you got to get real. We, we have well, to it, it works if you're Google or Facebook, you know, or, or TikTok, but, but, you know, eventually you have to, you have to generate revenue, right? Well, so, like Uber, right? Uber is a great example of that, right? Like Uber was in such a precarious situation there because they were just bleeding, bleeding billions of dollars. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, I, I know, but you know, they, they they've, they've, broaden out their offerings you know you can get groceries yeah. on uber you can get get food on uber i mean i you know i'm guilty of doing all that and and so you know eventually yeah, eventually you know i think on a, a an uber platform you'll you'll have a you know a drone that'll pick you up and, and take you somewhere i mean i i i, I believe that business model I've, I've seen the technology i know it's out there and and yeah. as long as they continue to dominate the market i mean there's always lift nipping at their heels you know but yeah. um, you know, Uber was smart. When when I was at my last firm, uh, Uber was a client, and I had um, Uber on. You know, it, it was like corporate, like corporate bill for to Uber, and so I wouldn't dream of doing anything anything other than an Uber because it was billed directly to my company when I was doing business travel, and and so yeah. that that was that was smart because you know I didn't even look at Lyft because Lyft didn't bill my company. Uber did. And, and so I, I think Uber, you know, had a lot of market share, at least in my world um, early on. And then, you know, now that I'm outside of there, I, I look at Lyft, I compare, I compare costs, but yeah, absolutely. I, I, but look, when you think about, when you, when you look at, look at TikTok, for example, massive eyeballs, right? But now if you look at what they're doing, they've got TikTok shop. I know because I'm I've got my book on TikTok shop and and you know really they're they're focusing a lot of their efforts on driving commerce now right you know whereas before it was you know the videos just would go viral but now it's the monetized stuff yeah. that that's getting pushed and 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 so all of those companies eventually have to get the revenue and be profitable you know there's no yeah. getting away from it and so it's just risky as a startup. Not everybody's going to be Facebook or Google or TikTok, right? And, and if you've got a model that's going to have you burning too much cash for too long, you, you risk running into a recession like we have now. You know, believe it or not, we're in a recession. And, uh, uh, and then what happens, right? When the capital markets dry up, you, 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 risk, you risk imploding. You know, yeah. I remember when I, prior to moving to Texas, I was in the DC market and D the DC, Washington DC area is notorious for beltway bandits. We call them. Those are companies that sell into the government. And so okay. when the, when the market, when the market, yeah. So in, in DC, there's a, there's a road that goes around the capital. It's 495. It's called the beltway. And, and kind of in that, in that area, there's like tons of companies that are have their whole business model built around the government. So the smart entrepreneurs, when the markets would dry up, they would figure out how to pivot 
and sell to the government because the U.S. government is the probably the world's largest customer. And if you could you can get those government revenues, they're not necessarily high margin revenues, but to keep the lights on. And so that was that was what all the entrepreneurs would do around D.C. You don't see it as much in Texas. It's a little bit in Texas, but you know it's it's a little different. We're further away from the the seat of government here. Yeah, 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 for sure. So tell us a little bit about your book uh, then. So you recently published a book. Uh, what's it about and uh, and, and well, where can we get it, I guess? Yeah, so it's called How to Live the Abundant Life. And when I first started coming up with the book idea and preparing for it, I, I thought I was going to write a book about how to do professional services business development because there's no class out there on how to do this. And it's not it's not like normal sales. You, you know, when you're selling a product, you, you know, you can make cold calls and, and, and sell and, and, you know, it's it, in the professional services world, it's much more relationship oriented. But as I was, and I actually did a podcast for a year called Rainmakers. It was a business development podcast to collect information from all the, the, the best of the best in all the different industries, uh, Rainmakers, right? And then when I got ready to kick off like doing the outline and, and working with the publisher, it dawned on me that that's kind of a niche, like business development for professional services is a niche. You want to sell books. Do you want to help people? Uh, and I realized the morning I got up to, to put together the, out, the outline that the same things that made me successful in business also make me successful at home and in the community. Yeah. And so I took those concepts and it's it's really doing things that are contrary to human nature right so so all of us want to have more we want to be more we want to get more and 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 so a lot of people go about that in a very selfish manner and and my book is the opposite of that it's it's about giving it's about helping others it's it's about doing all the things that come contrary to what you might want to do but in the end, they benefit you. They benefit you in terms of enriched relationships, ultimately financially, because because if you're well liked in, in the marketplace and you've done favors for people, it's amazing what people want to do back for you, yeah. right? Law I mean, all the people, right? yeah, the people who are buying my book and I've got like twenty five star reviews, you know, which you know right out of the gate, which it's it's wonderful. But those are all people that I I've touched at some. I think they are. I can't tell who all of them are, but. But, you know, that that's that's the idea of what comes around goes around. And so the book covers all that. You know, it 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 covers things like finding purpose in life. So many people walk through life. Like, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Right. Um, maintaining a sound mind. So many people struggle with that uh, and growing spiritually. I, I, I really take a, take that part of my life seriously. And, and even the, the most, you know, avowed atheists, I could get some ideas about, you know, where that might fit into their life. Maintaining a healthy body, um, pursuing personal growth. You know, I, I I show how things are not impossible to do. Like I wanted to fly airplanes. I don't. Nobody in my family is a pilot, right? And so I don't. I don't have any path to doing that. But I I wanted to do it, and I I took it on with bite size goals. You know, you 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 start out taking some lessons. You, you got to pass the written test. I mean, I wanted to go to Harvard. I never could get into Harvard as a kid, but I went to Harvard right before COVID. I, I, I managed to get into an executive education program. And so I, I flown airplanes and I you know got my pilot's license. I went to Harvard. I, I show how you can take 
things that seem impossible and put together bite-sized tasks to get you to where you can realize your dreams. And so, you know, there's a lot of those things in there, you know, maintaining relationships, you know, setting boundaries, becoming more likable. Everybody wants to be liked, right? Developing character, building a legacy, becoming part of a community and, and, and developing a good mindset. So th those are the things that I touch on in the book. And it and it's all with that same theme that I mentioned to you. I mean, some of the most rewarding times in my life are doing things for people that had no way of ever repaying me. For example, I, I volunteered 20 years in the juvenile detention center. I led church services for, for kids age 11 to 17 that were stuck in jail. And they had they had two options or three options they, they can they can get out and go back to their friends that, that they were running around with that got them in that jail in the first place and they might end up dead right because these guys are doing drugs and robbing people and stuff they could end up going uh to the the big house right the the jail um where the adults are and and that's a rough place to go um or they can make a decision to change their life and so we were offering them the one tried and true message that that you know helps people change their life and uh and they could accept it and and change their life or they could go back and struggle in the ways they were doing before and i was really pleased to see you know it wasn't all the kids but the few that that did make decisions with us i, I ran into them outside of the facilities I, I recount one of them in my book it's so rewarding to see a kid who otherwise yeah. might have gone to an adult facility or ended up you know, dead and, and you see them thriving and, and, and working and telling you about their plans for the future. That's rewarding, right? That's, yep. that's an abundant life. It's, it's, did I get a million dollars for doing it? No, I didn't get a cent, but who cares? I mean, it, that I'm talking to you about that now. I'm not talking about any money that I made. I'm talking about saving a kid's life. That's yeah. rewarding. Yeah. 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 That's really cool stuff. And so where can people find the book? So, Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's it's gonna it's gonna be getting out into stores as well. But Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. You just uh, type uh, "How to Live the Abundant Life" and put in my name, Carl Grant the Third. It pops pops right up. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. And if anybody wanted to connect with you, uh, whether it's to talk to you about some of the other businesses that you are running right now that you're spearheading to find investment. Uh, or just to connect with you in general, where do you want us to send them? I, I think social media is the best way to connect with me. Uh, if you go on to, okay. to LinkedIn and you type in Carl Grant the Third I I I, you'll find me. And if you say that you heard me on a podcast, you know I I will respond. You know people that come at me and with crazy stuff trying to sell me things, you know I don't respond to those. But but yeah, I, yeah. I do read all the messages I get. And uh, and I'm on other social media as well. Instagram's another one, carl.grant.iii. Uh, you can follow okay. me on there and, uh, you know, um, comment or message me and, and uh, we can connect there as well. Well, wonderful. Well, thanks so much for sharing your story, your journey with us and chatting with us a little bit about just entrepreneurship in general and some of the things that you've learned. I know our audience would have benefited a lot from listening to this. And so um, I just am so grateful that you took the time today to do that because there are so many businesses out there, so many entrepreneurs that, you know, have uh, different there are different stages of their development and they're trying to figure out how to overcome different challenges and uh, where they can find some inspiration. And I'm sure that you've inspired a number of them. So thank you so much, Carl. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Lance. It's been my pleasure.
And for everybody who's listening today, if you really like this episode and want to check out some other ones, you can head over to our archives at amplifybusiness.ca. And of course, follow us on all of your major social media channels, as well as podcasting platforms. Just search Amplify Your Business and uh, you'll be able to find us there. Until next time, everybody have a prosperous day. 